You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Hello and welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Adam Weir and I'm calling today from Doha in Qatar. In this podcast, we will be talking to Dr. Ben Kibler about the new paper on the Scapula Summit 2013 consensus. That's the editor's choice in this September edition of BJSM. Dr. Kibler is an orthopedic surgeon from Lexington in Kentucky. And Dr. Kibler, it's a pleasure to have you on the line with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Congratulations on the paper. I very much enjoyed reading it, and I would advise all our readers to do so. And I was just wondering if you could introduce the paper to us, tell us a little bit about the history of the Scapula Summit. How did it come about? Well, um, several years ago, when we first got interested in the scapula, we there's no information about the scapula. It was a fairly new subject and fairly new field. And uh, over a couple of years, it became obvious that there were maybe five or six people in the whole world that were actually studying the, the scapula. And so we decided to um, bring them all together for a little meeting so we would every everybody could understand where they were and, and what the issues were about the scapula. So we had a very informal meeting here in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, several years ago, and uh, we just got together to talk and, and to introduce ourselves. And we have become a, a pretty small group, but a, a very uh, collegial group since that time. And we decided every three years that um, we would try to get together and, and update what was happening in the world of the scapula. Well, since that time, it is uh, the information has blossomed quite a bit. Uh, so in 2009, we decided to actually, uh, we had enough information uh, that we could then uh, produce a work product of our little get-together. And so that particular meeting was held in Lexington, and we looked at what a definition of scapular dyskinesis was, how we were going to use common terms to describe the alterations we see, and to try to work on some ideas of how to identify it clinically, and then how to talk about some interventions. At that time, it was mainly um, rehabilitation. So the result of that summit became a paper that was in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, JOSPT, in 2009. Uh, it set the pretty good groundwork for our understanding, and since that time, there's been a whole lot of information coming back that we can identify what scapodiskinesis is, and we kind of understand why it occurs. We started looking at it, looking at it in association with the multiple problems that exist around the shoulder. And so the focus of this last meeting, which was held in 2012, was what role does the scapula play in the manifestations of clinical problems associated with shoulder injuries? And there's a lot of data that shows that, um, obviously, since the scapula is a key component of normal glenohumeral and scapulohumeral rhythm and motion and force production, that uh, it's not surprising that in a number of different problems, uh, the uh, scapula plays some type of a role. We're not going to say it's a cause or an effect, but there's a very definitely an associated role for scapodiskinesis in producing the clinical problem that the patient has, whether it be impingement, rotator cuff disease, labral injury, AC separations, clavicle fractures, multidirectional instability, uh, you name it, and the scapula can play a role. And therefore, we need to look for it in all these different shoulder problems, and we need to evaluate for it 
as part of the exam, and then we need to treat it, whether it's treating the underlying problem uh, that's causing the dyskinesis or treat the dyskinesis, which is part of the underlying problem. So that's an up-to-date of where we are now. And, and the paper that is in BJSM looks at the different manifestations of scapular alterations uh, in these different types of diseases. Oh, thanks very much for that explanation. And I'd like to now, if it's okay with you, just run through some of the things from the, the statement, go through it point by point. Because as you stated, you, you managed to reach a consensus on the definitions and a little bit on the terminology you use. And I see in the paper you like to use the term dyskinesis. Could you just tell us how you guys define scapular dyskinesis and if there's a reason that you chose to use that specific terminology? Well, this this came as a term, oh, probably six or eight years ago. And it's dis, meaning alteration of, kinesis, which is a broad term for motion. Some people call it dyskinesia. Dyskinesia is a specific term relating to alteration of motion due to neurological alterations, you know, either the tardive dyskinesias, things like that. Uh, this, is, this has so many multiple reasons that are not necessarily neurologic in their cause that dyskinesis is the more inclusive term. So, that's, so we use that term. We define it as uh, an alteration of motion or position of the scapula. Dyskinesis is the alteration of motion position. When it is associated with clinical symptoms, then it becomes something we need to evaluate. It's very similar to um, a sulcus sign of the shoulder or a uh, loose patella of the knee. It may not have any clinical significance. It just may be something that goes on in the body. But when it's associated with symptoms, then it needs to be evaluated and treated. We really call this problem not a diagnosis or not an injury. It is, uh, we have determined that it's an impairment of, it's a potential impairment to normal function of the shoulder. It, by potential, it means that, you know, you can have a dyskinesis on one side of the shoulder and never use your arm overhead, never have any problem with it. Uh, however, uh, it is an impairment. It, it makes the system less efficient, and therefore you need to treat it. Yeah, that's very clear. And when we we move on after the, the definition and how we should use the terminology correctly, the next step would be uh, what's the current thinking on how we should examine our patients for the presence or absence of scapular dyskinesis? Well, at this point in time, uh, the... Uh, evaluation is strictly by clinical observation. The scapula is a difficult bone to evaluate well by imaging. It has to be moving, it has to be dynamic. Now, Peter Millet out in Colorado is doing some very interesting work on using dynamic fluoro to uh, evaluate this, and that's pretty good, but there's a you know, fairly high dose of radiation, and this is limited to certain places at this point in time. So right now, the clinical observation is still the best. As a result, <clears throat> there's been lots of work looking at how we can best objectify this clinical observation. Our group here in Lexington and then Phil McClure's group in Philadelphia have gotten some pretty good ways of um, objectifying the clinical exam. We look at the medial border of the scapula. This is a very common landmark. You can see that even in, um, uh, in muscular individuals. And we have a standardized evaluation 
to look at the motion and the position of the scapula. And we look at the medial border, and if you see it asymmetrically uh, positioned or moving compared to the other side, then we call this a yes or no. It's a dichotomous yes, it's different than the other side, no, it's not. There are two patterns we look for. One is a dyssynchrony in that as you move it, it moves in a jerky fashion so that as you raise your arms, it will what we call kick out or wing. And then especially on the down slope, you take your arm all the way in forward flex and bring it back down to the side. You'll see on the down slope of the uh, bringing your arm back to the side, it will actually kick out or wing fairly uh, markedly. So this would be the dyssynchrony. The second is the alteration of position so that the you see either the inferior medial border, the entire medial border, or the superior medial border of the scapula being prominent as you move the arm. Either of these is a yes. Anything else is a no. Turns out that um, if you do, if you have them move their arms in forward flexion, this brings out the most stress uh, on the uh, scapular muscles. And you have it, you have them do it either three times to five times. And if you really want to see it, put oh about a uh, one to two kilogram weight in your arm, in your hand, and you can see this kick out. Then that has a 0.84 correlation with true biomechanically determined alteration and pattern. So the clinical observation can be very helpful and very reliable at picking it out when it's present. Um, and so we use this as the examination. We do two other confirmatory tests. Both are manual corrective maneuvers where we place the scapula in a position of stability in retraction. It's called the scapular retraction or scapular reposition test. You actually put the scapula in manually place in position. You stabilize in that position and you ch see that there's a change in the uh, patient's symptoms. They either have more strength and demonstrate rotator cuff test or they have less pain with forward flexion. The scapular assistance test is an assistance test where we actually guide the inferior medial border of the scapula as the arm is raised into overhead position, and you find that the painful arc, the impingement symptoms, go away. What this signifies, of course, is that maximizing the position of the scapula in a position of retraction or in upward rotation eliminates or greatly modifies the symptoms that the patient describes, and they feel, therefore, that whatever they did is uh, helping them, therefore they will want to participate in the rehabilitation to achieve that as well. They've never seen their scapula, so they don't know what's going on. Whatever you did back there made them feel better, therefore they will participate in that um, better. So that right now that's the clinical examination. Then you have to look at the reasons for this. It can range everything from a fractured clavicle, AC separation, some type of internal derangement in the shoulder, such as labral injury, biceps tendinopathy, rotator cuff disease. It can be the classical neurological problems of uh, you know, long thoracic nerve or uh, accessory uh, spinal nerve problem, or it can be a, a dyssynchrony or an inhibition of the muscles uh, so that the low trap and the serratus, serratus don't work and the upper trap and the pectoralis minor work too much to create this. So there's a lot of different reasons for the clinical observation that you have to figure out. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, I would point the readers also to have a look at the accompanying editorial to this paper written by Babette Plaum, in which there's some nice illustrations of a couple of the tests mentioned. And it's always nice to see that uh, clinical examination remains the cornerstone here of making uh, making the diagnosis. 
if we uh, move on in, in the paper and we think that we, we dichotomize the dyskinesis is, is present or absent, if we would uh, say that dyskinesis is present, uh, we've looked at the, the possible causes. It's hard to say something about treatment, perhaps because there are so many multiple causes, but is it possible to briefly run us through the current thinking that came to the forefront in the, in the summit on the best way to treat at the minute? Yes, there would be the structural problems such as a fractured clavicle or a uh, high-grade AC separation where you lose the strut of the clavicle to stabilize the scapula in a retracted position. Obviously, that needs to be treated. You, If it's um, inhibition of muscle activation because of some glenohumeral internal derangement, such as labral injury, biceps injury, you need to treat that, obviously. The large majority of these are loss of muscle activation patterning. A lot of times it's due to impingement or rotator cuff disease or direct low trauma, fatigue, a lot of different things can cause that. And therefore, and this is the really hard work, is to then get those muscles to be reorganized in patterns to stabilize and retract the scapula as your arm moves. And uh, because for some reason the low trap is a is kind of these is the probably the key muscle in this. It, not only does it have a major effect to stabilize the retracted scapula with the arm overhead, but it seems to have some type of a, uh, an effect on upper trap latissimus and pectoralis minor activation. So that when it's not working, these other muscles are hyperactive, and so they tend to pull the scapula forward. It can be a really relatively long and difficult path to rehabilitation on this. Um, Anne Cools from Belgium is one of the major uh, major drivers of the rehabilitation of this, and she wrote a very, very nice paper, she and Todd Ellenbecker, in BJSM last year on the principles of um, rehabilitation of the scapula that I would recommend. Uh, uh, we also uh, included in our paper you know, a lot of uh, rehabilitation techniques. I would also uh, fully agree with you recommending uh, that paper. It's a, it's a lovely paper and nicely illustrated as well. So just thinking about rounding up this podcast, as we move on towards the future, this was the second scapula summit. Where do you That's feel correct. that the, the, the scapula field would, would hopefully head between now and the next one in another three years? Well, what we would like to see, I would like to see more of Dr. Millet's work out in Colorado to be able to better objectify the exact position and motion of the scapula um, in various normal and abnormal situations. I think that's going to be very helpful so we can better understand the um, the exact alterations in the position and motion of the scapula. With It may be that it, we're never going to find it related to one specific diagnosis. I don't think we are, are going to because I think it's more of a reaction to a lot of different input. Uh, the other thing is to get much better understanding of, of why the muscles uh, fail in the way they do and how to rehabilitate them and activate them in more normal patterns more efficiently. The final thing was exactly where does the scapula play its role in the dysfunction? Is it a cause or is it an effect? Uh, can we therefore prevent some of these uh, injuries, uh, especially in, for example, in baseball throwers or workers where the scapular failure really is almost 100% of the time associated with clinical symptoms. And can we pre perhaps prevent this by a good scapular preventative program? 
Well, that would be lovely, I think, if we have some more answers to the, the chicken and egg question, uh, right. which is so intriguing in many of uh, many of sports medicine uh, dilemmas that we're faced with on a day-to-day basis. So uh, I'm already looking forward to the next consensus paper in 2016. So I'd like to round up today just by thanking you, Dr. Ben Kibler, for joining us today and for your and all your group's amazing efforts in producing such a nice paper. Uh, I point the readers to the fact that that paper, the Scapula Summit 2013 consensus paper, is this month's editor's choice. And just uh, also like to remind them to check out the accompanying editorial, one by Dr. Kibler himself, speaking about the background of the Scapula Summit and the second editorial by Dr. Babette Plaum uh, that illustrates some of the physical examination techniques used in the in the paper. Yeah, thank you very much for your efforts and all the efforts of BJSM to um, uh, get this out to uh, people all, all around the world so that uh, they can better understand where the scapula plays a role in shoulder injuries. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.